Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. You're listening to part three of my chat with former Australian Border Force Commissioner Roman Kodvlik. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, I strongly recommend that you pause this episode and listen to those ones first. In this final instalment, Roman and I discuss the challenges he faced as the Commissioner of the Australian Border Force Agency and our joint work on the islands of Nauru and Manus Island managing one of the greatest humanitarian challenges the Australian government had faced in many years. Now, on Protect and Serve. What I would like to spend a bit of time talking about, your eventual role as the commissioner, or moving into the commission of the Australian Border Force, um, after obviously fulfilling the role of CEO and deputy CEO of the Australian Customs and Border Protection Service, which was amalgamated into what became Australian Border Force. And I suppose the key subject topic around this is the Australian uh, Coalition's um, Operation Sovereign Borders, which was an operation which was uh, created as a result of immigration issues and, and illegal boat arrivals coming into Australia from the north and the significant loss of life at sea as a result of those attempts of individuals, asylum seekers and refugees trying to gain access to Australia for ultimately a better life. Uh, now, the, the synergies we have here is I worked on Nauru in a professional standards capacity, overseeing uh, two of the private providers that were providing some of those services. So, But talk us through Operation Sovereign Borders. Talk us through the remit of the Commission of Australian Border Force 
and the significant challenges that that played on your department? Yeah, so let me uh, paint the canvas very quickly for you. Uh, You've added some colour there, which is um, uh, accurate. Uh, As a result of predominantly what is known in this industry as push factors, uh, i.e. conflict or um, very uh, difficult socioeconomic factors, there were cohorts of asylum seekers um, coming to seek a better life in Australia, as you described. Um, They were coming uh, predominantly at that time, so we're talking 2013, um, from either the Middle uh, Middle East or around uh, Afghanistan, uh, the subcontinent, um, but particularly um, Sri Lanka or Sri Lankans that were resident on the um, east coast of uh, India in Tamil, Nadu. Um, and uh, they were coming to Australia via maritime means. Uh, and when I say maritime means, it sounds much more um, highbrow than it actually was. They were coming on uh, very unseaworthy vessels that they had procured um, predominantly on the South Javanese coast. So Java is a, um, it's an area of Indonesia, which is a archipelagic country that runs to our north in Australia and stretches uh, pretty much across the entirety of uh, our northern continent. And in between the south coast of Java and uh, Australia, there's a lot of water. Um, Indian Ocean, um, very, very, very large tracts of of water. And um, they were arriving in rickety boats uh, at snail pace, uh, overloaded. Um, These boats designed for maximum of a dozen people would be loaded with 60 or 70 people regularly, um, more often higher numbers in over the hundred and they, uh, they found it a lot, uh, capsized, uh, lots of people drowned. The death toll from the Christmas Island tragedy continues to rise. It now appears likely that as many as 50 asylum seekers perished. They had no hope, really. They, they hung on for as long as they possibly could, and uh, they were eventually, each one of them were eventually thrown off into the sea onto the rocks. Hopes are fading fast of finding any more survivors from yesterday's asylum seeker boat tragedy north of Christmas Island. Some of the asylum seekers spent an hour in the water, clinging to debris and the increasingly faint hope of rescue. And so um, Australia was left with an existential problem uh, in terms of its border security uh, because not only were people drowning, which was uh, unacceptable to anyone, but uh, a lot of the boats were getting through and uh, were bumping into our coastline or arriving um, in and around Christmas Island, which is a little dot of rock in the middle of the Indian Ocean, uh, halfway between um, Australia and uh, Indonesia and halfway between Australia and India. It really is in the middle of nowhere, but it's in, it's in Australian territory. And under our Migration Act, people arriving there, um, touching soil, uh, ha- had the option to apply for asylum under Australian migration law. So that was a, um, a destination of choice because it was easier to get there than continue the entire journey to the Australian continent. Um, That led to uh, thousands, 
thousands, tens of thousands of uh, asylum seekers hitting our migration system and it became saturated very, very quickly. Our, um, our centres, detention centres were full, our processing capacity couldn't keep up with uh, the amount of people arriving and uh, politically it was causing some challenges to the then Labor government. Um, they were heading to an election at the end of 2013 and uh, you know, the arrival of a boat every six hours, um, 40 or 50 boats a month uh, at those numbers I described uh, was starting to sear into the consciousness of the constituency. They thought the Labor government had basically lost control of the borders um, and they, they, the people, wanted the government to do something about it. And so before Operation Sovereign Borders was set up by the coalition government, uh, Labor uh, decided that they needed a much more robust response. Uh, so I got tapped on the shoulder as the chief police officer to go and run essentially the operational component of what was then Customs and Border Protection to deal with the on-water arrivals. Um, and whilst I was confident in my operational abilities, Ollie, um, I'd never worked in a maritime enforcement space before, so I was a little bit surprised, but nonetheless, I took up that <laughs> challenge with gusto. Um, and concurrently, the Labor government um, also instituted offshore processing, which uh, I know is a significant issue that's on the public debate in the UK in relation to the uh, migration across the channel by asylum seekers. Um, the offshore processing and our on-water operations um, had some effect, but for the Labor government at the time, it was too late. The damage had been done. So when the election rolled on in September, they got ousted and the new government came in. The Labor Party uh, left. Um, the border in shambles, as the uh, incoming government described, and the Liberal National Party coalition came in and set up Operation Sovereign Borders. Operation Sovereign Borders uh, ultimately was highly successful in stopping that asylum flow. Um, but I might just pull up there because I know I've been on a monologue here for the last five minutes. I'm happy to talk about Operation Sovereign Borders and what it looked like, but just pausing, do you have any um, observations or questions on that? Yeah, it's an interesting one because as you quite rightly point out, Raymond, it's been a point of uh, huge public debate here in the UK um, for the last number of years with high numbers of people coming across uh, the channel, as you point out. And, you know, one of the one of the big touchstone moments for the Australian Labour government in 2010 was on the 15th of December, where 89 asylum seekers lost their lives after a boat crashed into the rocks off Christmas Island. And they were scenes which were just catastrophic, women and children and men uh, fighting to save their lives, trying to stay alive, and you know, in very dangerous and troubled waters. You know, as you pointed out, large masses of water, people trying to come across in craft that were really not fit for service to be on flat waters, let alone ocean going. But one of the greatest challenges for you taking up the position, as you quite rightly pointed out, is that you've gone from managing police resources, police cars, investigators, different types of operational capabilities, whether it be 
helicopters in the sky, police cars on the ground, to operating what was a very strong maritime presence to very significant infrastructure which was patrolling the waters of Australia, not only detecting asylum seekers and refugees, but obviously the importation and movement of illicit substances, whether illicit tobacco, other different bits and pieces. But the implementation of Operation Sovereign Borders and and your agency's um, pr- primary role there is to really try to identify who these individuals are and to be able to assess uh, the genuine nature of their claims, be it asylum seekers or refugees. And one of the greatest challenges here is, is when they come into contact with authorities, identifications and means to which a passport or an ID goes over the side. So before you know it, you've got individuals that you have no idea who they are, their background, whether they pose a risk to national security or otherwise. So that's a process, obviously, that's undertaken during their processing, we'll call it, through both Nauru and Manus Island. Do you want to talk us through some of those operational challenges? Yeah. Um, you're right. Um any system of migration, um, and particularly uh, in the stream of refugee and humanitarian uh, intakes, uh, relies heavily on uh, validating the claims um, because asylum seekers are that. They're seeking asylum from a purported prosecution or persecution in other countries uh, or some other threat uh, that uh, impinges upon their health, safety, or their lives. In order to validate those claims, it starts with identity. Um, Identity is the anchor point or the the cornerstone of validating claims. Um, And particularly in the people smuggling dimension of that, um, more often than not, uh, identification documents weren't available. Uh, that was for a variety of reasons, of course. Um, you know, sometimes people fleeing from uh, conflict areas don't have the opportunity to gather their uh, their belongings in their verification documents. Some don't have access to those um, because of the countries where they come from. But also um, the deliberate destruction of those um, documents for whatever motivation, you know, whether they're told by people smugglers that um, you have a greater likelihood or prospect of being taken on board into a country and um, being given succor and support. And once you're there, um, it's very hard for them to get rid of you. Therefore, get rid of your documents because that gives you an opportunity to, to, to buy time whilst they're identifying who you are. And the more you buy time, the more chance you have of staying in that country. In other cases, the people smugglers themselves um, take possession of uh, mobile phones, passports, driver's license, anything that might identify the people as a form of coercive control uh, and uh, reuniting the asylum seekers with those documents is not really something that the people smugglers think about. They just destroy them. Um, So there's a variety of reasons why people turn up, were turning up without documentation and you're right, that uh, is very difficult when the anchor stone of, a, of validating a claim is identity. Um, we also had the, uh, the the concomitant problem, Ollie, that um, we didn't have enough space. Uh, you know, they were arriving in, in such large numbers that our centres were saturated. So 
Um, people are given bridging visas, essentially, uh, which uh, is a, uh, a mechanism where someone is told, okay, uh, give us your name, your date of birth, um, whatever verification documents or details you can give us. Here's a temporary visa. Here's some money. Go live in the community. Stay in touch. We'll come back to you when we've got a chance to assess your claims. Now, in that process, clearly um, there's a lot of... Um, misinformation, uh, sometimes deliberate. Uh, people don't stay in the place that they say they're going to go to. And so we had 30,000 people in that scheme that were uh, essentially tagged and released. Um, and there are still tens of thousands of people in that cohort some nine years later uh, who have never had recontact with authorities. They're in our community and they've set up lives and are you know, living hopefully productive lives and making contributions to society, but um, we don't know who, that, who they are necessarily. And even if we do have a name, um, you know, it might not be the right one. Um, and I'll finish on this point uh, in response to this question. Um, there's a, a, um, a principle in... Uh, refugee practice called refoulement. If someone is, is fleeing persecution, um, a signatory state to the convention shouldn't and can't repatriate that person back to whence they came um, to put them back in a position of danger from which they were fleeing. Now, that same principle applies when you're trying to identify and validate claims because quite often the claims are that they were persecuted in a country elsewhere and making inquiries in that country in order to validate that they were persecuted may in itself cause a person to be refoul because if the claim is then not upheld and there's no protection awarded and they're repatriated back to that country, the very fact that inquiries are made by Australian authorities would put them in danger. So you get this sort of circular um process where it's very difficult sometimes to, one, verify their, their identity, and two, validate the claims of persecution. And one of the other particular issues that was always uh, front of mind for people is the cost associated with venturing to Australia, because the people smugglers, as we call them, uh, charge a phenomenal amount of money for these people to be able to carry out this very high-risk task of trying to get to Australia so often there was that argument are these people genuine asylum seekers and refugees bearing in mind this has cost them an absolute fortune to try and get here in an attempt to try and restart life so are these so often the often the conversation was are these financial refugees are they genuine refugees and asylum seekers because the cost associated you wouldn't often associate with people that really were in in in, in a dire situation in the countries of origin that they'd come from did you take a view on that in particular? I think that's a false correlation. I've heard that argument many a time, but um, I, I think that's a false correlation. If I look back at the cohorts on uh, that were processed on Nauru, where you were, Ollie, by way of example, the majority of that cohort were found to be genuine asylum seekers. Now, clearly, there were those that weren't, and they were either repatriated or still being determined what we do with them because some of them come from countries which won't take them back. Um but if you look at that as the end result, then uh, there's logic in the proposal that, or the hypothesis that 
the majority of people arriving were genuine asylum seekers. But if I go back to the start of that continuum for a moment, we always start from the uh, the principle that uh, contained within a, any genuine cohort of asylum seekers, there are going to be those that are exploiting that uh, because they're financial or economic refugees, as the colloquial term is known, or you know they are fleeing because they're you know, wanting to and flee the authorities, but they're a national security risk to Australia because um, you know, previously they were fighting in some some rebel group or ISIS or what, whatever it might be. So that that's always a concern that within that stream of asylum seekers, there is either a genuine asylum seeker, but who also poses as a national security risk because the two aren't mutually exclusive, or that within the, that cohort or that stream, uh, there are people who are not genuine asylum seekers who are coming for some other reason and are a national security risk because they've been involved in um, uh, activities, uh, uh, terrorist activities somewhere else in the world. And that, that causes us some great concern. But if I go to the point of your question, the price of births on a rickety fishing boat from South Javanese coast to Christmas Island or to the northern end of Australia, at its height, the people smugglers were charging somewhere around $15,000 Australian per person. Um, but like any commercial enterprise, there is elasticity in that. And when Operation Sovereign Borders started to really take effect and we were doing turnbacks and uh, people were getting sent off to offshore processing centres, which caused that significant deterrent effect, people smugglers um, were desperate, were becoming desperate to sell births. Um, and they struggled to give away births for a couple of thousand dollars Australian because these people who had arrived, genuine or not, had scraped together in some cases, you know, this money, it was life savings or they had borrowed it from family or friends. Um, and they weren't prepared to give up the money uh, knowing that there was a high probability of being intercepted by Australian boats, Australian naval or uh, Coast Guard boats, and they would end up in Nauru or Manus Island up in Papua New Guinea. They simply weren't prepared to do that. So that, there was that commercial elasticity in the pricing of berths in the people smuggling trade, which I should add, uh, was a multi-billion dollar enterprise at its height. Good evening. First tonight, the first boat of asylum seekers to be subjected to Kevin Rudd's harsh new policy has arrived off Christmas Island. The most compassionate thing you can do is stop the boats. Uh, we have stopped the boats. Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott has said that it is no secret that the Australian government is turning back boats on high seas. You know, Madam Speaker, I'll tell the member who asked the question what's unfair. Starting the boats and putting the people smugglers back into business, that's unfair. And I'll tell you what's fair, stopping the boats and saving all those lives at sea. One of the other facets of uh, genuine regular conversation often at Senate estimates was the conditions, the facilities, the staff charged with the responsibility of looking after and providing um, safety and security of asylum seekers and refugees. You know, a number of um, uh, people were infiltrated that operation to try and gather evidence to demonstrate those types of positions. There were particular parties in Australia that took a very strong stance against this policy and certain politicians and senators who were very outspoken about it. 
you'd obviously visited both Nauru and Manus Island and there's no denying there were particular issues at times in terms of antisocial behaviour within those facilities. Nauru had a very bad outbreak in the early onset in terms of rioting and burning down of the facility at RPC1, all very well documented in, in newspapers right around the world. What were your feelings in terms of those centres? Because from my perspective, my period there in a professional standards role, holding people accountable when allegations were made in terms of against behaviour of staff, um, I found them to be incredibly professional. Services being offered to people which um, were, were were equal to those being offered in Australia to a you know a normal Australian citizen. Of course, you're going to get isolated incidents of people behaving badly and needing to be held accountable. Like any organisation and like any large operation, there's going to be problems along the way. But in general terms, do you think we got it right? Yeah. Um, if I set aside for a moment the the debate around the, uh, the, the ethics of having an offshore processing uh, amenity uh, or, or policy because that is still unresolved as we know um, globally. Uh, it's the same issue around turnbacks, whether they should or shouldn't be done, are they inhumane? Um, and you know there is a entire industry of commentary around that. Uh, from politicians and humanitarian organisations and uh, advocacy groups, um, legal fraternity, and, you know, we can have that debate. But in the context of your question, um, I do think that eventually we got it right. And I say that because there's a temporal aspect to this. Uh, when the um, centres were initially established in 2013 and there is some history to this but I'll start from this sort of 2013 point um as you know it was in a context of crisis mm. um there was no time to um conduct uh extensive planning and logistical arrangements um and um arrange for instance, high-end medical amenities. These things take time to do. And even in a non-crisis situation, if you had no operational context, establishing a high-end professionally run uh, facility for uh, keep, keep, keep keeping people in custody takes a lot of time, effort and money. And if you then splice in the operational context where uh, Australian agencies and departments were getting uh, absolutely overwhelmed with um, asylum seekers and uh, commentary and the um, the tyranny of distance because we're talking about very very large distances here between Australia and Nauru, you know, very big oceans, Pacific Ocean in between. It's not like we're driving a uh, a couple well, of. It's a four hour. It's a four hour flight from. Brisbane it's a four hour flight. It's not like you've got prefab concrete slabs that you can set up you know, at the block next door. That's just not how it worked. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, th there was this sort of uh, almost field hospital type arrangement in the in initial stages where you know, there were canvas marquees set up and uh, or temporary facilities and catering may have been uh, done in, in a way which you know, wouldn't uh, pass muster uh, today. But over time, as I say, temporarily, the amount of money investment uh, um, design and thinking that went into the uh, establishment of those facilities. I visited Manus Island facilities and I visited Nauru 
And um, yeah, you could argue that they were, uh, and I, I know I'll probably get cop some criticism for this from the commentariat, but uh, you could argue they were at least equal to standards um, that uh, anyone in Australia has access to in terms of amenities. Yes, you know, you're on a Pacific island, you're restricted in terms of your movement, you're not within your cultural uh, and national uh, domain, um, you're in custody, you're in a, you know, you're in a, in a centre, even though ultimately they turned into open centres, so they had some room to move into the, into the community um, and restricted amenities, I, I understand that, but um, look, I have to agree with you, Ollie, I think ultimately in the context of running a offshore detention facility uh, in the way uh, it was done under that policy. I, I, did, I did do think we got it right. And you, you, when you look at the, the sort of service providers that were there, and I, and, I, and I always reflect on health because it's the most important thing. If we don't have our health, we haven't got a lot at all. And we had the, the International Health Medical Service, IHMS, were there, absolutely outstanding organisation. We were regularly medivacking people out of Nauru from my experience and Manus Island with sickness and you know pregnant females who needed medical attention uh you know mental health facilities because there were some people there who had incredible stories just to sit down and talk with them for five ten minutes and understanding where they'd come from the challenges and the adversity that they showed through really troubled backgrounds it was quite incredible and I must admit in my position I was absolutely honored to be there in terms of trying to to support in any way I could in trying to make it the best operation we possibly could. But it was phenomenally a, a significant political hot potato and still is today in terms of some of the providers. There were some very difficult conversations at Senate committees with security providers and others over the period of the of the operation and probably will be in the future. But what I wanted to reflect on now is that, you know, one of the greatest challenges the UK faces, and it has done for a number of years yet, and the numbers are quite phenomenal and staggering of people trying to enter the UK from France across the channel. And often those that can't afford to pay their way end up in slavery in terms of how they've got to pay that back, which is a great challenge in terms of those modern day slavery issues, women being entrapped in, as sex slaves and, and other awful nefarious activities that go on. If you had an opportunity to sit down with our Home Secretary, who's currently facing this significant dilemma from her peers, from the electorate, uh, upcoming elections, what advice would you give? Because at the moment, the option on the table is, is relocating to Rwanda. It hasn't been uh, well received here. What, what advice would you give us to probably a proportionate response to trying to stop the boats as Australia did very successfully? I... I'm going to caveat this comment because um, every operating context is different. Um, yeah, the, our operating um, variables were idiosyncratic to our region. Uh, and I'll give you one example of that. Um, the maritime distances between points of embarkation and points of arrival were significant in our context. And that posed challenges for the asylum seekers and for us in terms of coverage and response, um, you know, and I, I can't impress enough upon your listeners um, how vast those distances are. Um, Europeans are often surprised when we say in Australia, well, we're going to take a, you know, a four hour drive to see family. You, know, you sometimes traverse half the European continent in that time um, and, and then multiply that out by 10 in terms of the maritime approaches. Whereas um, the current point of concentration of uh, 
crossings for asylum seekers uh, from continental Europe to the UK is focused on that Calais-Dover corridor, which, as we know, is quite short and it's quite a complex ecosystem of maritime boundaries and responsibilities. Moreover, the response times um, for authorities to respond to incursions um, is very, very short. So that's just an example of some of the idios idiosyncratic differences. Having said that, and I've examined the UK situation very, very closely, I've analysed it a lot and I've made predictions which have come to fruition to this day, there is a prospect of the UK being able to at least mitigate or, or, or reduce the number of arrivals by the transposition of the Operation Sovereign Borders model, not in its uh, completeness, but in its four pillars. The reason why Operation Sovereign Borders succeeded was because it was an integrated program of four activities, uh, which in coordination, and when I say coordination, not by just a single operational commander, but across the whole of government stakeholders, which is so important uh, getting, to getting this right across the political and the bureaucratic and the operational agency spectrum. That coordination is, is vital to running an integrated program. And those four pillars are the on-water operations, as we call it. Now, we did effective turnbacks that not might not be um, uh, viable in the UK context, but on-water operations is one pillar. And there's a whole variety of tactics that you can implement to uh, to disrupt and deter and prevent uh, those crossings in the first place. So that's pillar one. Pillar two is the uh, what we call the offshore disruption pillar, but it's essentially tackling the pipeline right back to the sourcing of where the asylum seekers are originating. So any notion that you can actually stop by focusing on France is a nonsense, it's a naivety, it's not going to happen. You, you're merely playing goalkeeper at that point. You've got to go right back along the continuum to the source and work with all of the countries in between those two points to affect suppressive actions to slow down that, that pipe or reduce it. So that's pillar two. Pillar three is the offshore processing, which acts as a significant deterrent. Um, and I can't speak strongly enough, not so much the, we can have an argument again against the ethics of the policy, but as a deterrent effect, offshore processing, whether it's Rwanda, Albania, Denmark, doesn't matter, but that is a significant uh, reducer of the volume. And then pillar four, which we haven't touched upon and we can do some other time, or if you want to dive into it, I call the unsung hero of Operation Sovereign Borders is the communication strategy and most people of your listeners would be forgiven for thinking well that's all about allaying uh, the uh, the anxieties of the public in the UK about what we're doing yes that's a very small part of it but the work that we did in terms of communicating along that pipeline I described in terms of source points transit points pooling points um, on the cohorts that were traveling to communicate things like you're being ripped off, you're going to end up in an offshore detention centre, you're going to lose all your money, you're 
lives are at risk. Um, you're not going to achieve what you want to achieve. The effect of that across that continuum was enormous. And I'm talking about tactics that um, were so varied in terms of their communication. We do street performances. We do documentaries. We do uh, cell tower penetrations to get mass SMSs through to where asylum seekers were congregated. We um, would put out uh, um, billboards at uh, airports and uh, embarkation points of note. So there's a... Um, there's a there's a lot of value in that fourth pillar. So if I step back from that, uh, that integrated program ultimately coordinated at the uh, at a whole of government level will have an effect on the UK. I, I have no doubt about it, but it takes a lot of um, machinery and meshing of the cogs to make that happen. And I haven't seen that happen yet in the UK. And I think that one of the greatest challenges has been is it's... Uh often dominated uh, uh, the elections um, in terms of being the biggest issue for people is and the number one the number one role of government is to protect its borders or one of the number one one of the most highest priorities for government is to protect the borders and protect the people within the country in terms of understanding who are the individuals that are coming and there's no doubt about it there are people that who are trying to come in who have legitimate and very compelling stories to allow them to come and to resettle and to start new lives where they're, they're free from oppression, they have the ability to raise a family in a safe environment and be a productive member of society. Uh, and, you know, the challenge we have is in terms of whose accountability, you know, stories of here, authorities from France escorting them halfway and then them allowing to continue their journey. So it's very highly politicised here between two countries. It's a great challenge. I suppose I... I suppose I hope that people like yourselves who, you know, expert and have experience and understanding what works, what hasn't worked, um, changing that form slightly to suit. You know, on one day in August, we had 1,500 people arrive from, 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 from through the channel. Astronomical numbers. And you think to yourself, this isn't sustainable, not only because the, there's the increased risk of loss of life at sea. They slow down during the winter, naturally, because the water's become too dangerous to, to, to transit to, to come over from. But but ultimately, you know, we're, we're hoping we get answers soon. So fingers crossed that you have an opportunity to to explain that plan and to get involved in, in hopefully allowing us to try and come up with a solution which fits every meets every stakeholder's needs and needs and objectives but um, yeah and let me re respond very quickly to that um ollie and i'll pick up a point uh which you implied but let me uh articulate it explicitly the um one of the hallmarks of a civilized advanced liberal democracy is the willingness capacity and execution of a program of refugee and humanitarian intake. Um, you know, there are 65 million displaced people in the world for, as you rightly point out, uh, valid reasons, uh, conflict or persecution of a nation state. And uh, the Refugee Convention of 1951, uh, when you read it, uh, it's a very simple document. Uh, it's been distorted over time, um, but uh, it's a very simple document with some very profound fundamental principles which, with which I agree. We need to give succor and support to those who are in persecution. And as I say, a hallmark of a civilised nation is to be able to provide that. It is very difficult to do that when you have a disorderly migration challenge at your borders. If you're constantly in response mode, 
um, trying to protect your borders, uh, dealing with loss of life, dealing with the um, the fraternal uh, internecine disputes between nation states because they happen to share a maritime border, i.e. the UK and France, same with us in Australia and Indonesia. Um, you are diverting attention, resources, uh, policy uh, and significant investment on dealing with a disorderly arrival to the detriment of uh, structured migration programs. And structured migration programs can build in refugee and humanitarian intakes and should do that. But unless the UK gets a control of this illegal migration challenge across the channel, it's never going to have the time or the opportunity or the, the resources to set up a proper orderly migration structure, which can then be generous in terms of the refugee and humanitarian intake. And I think that is the biggest travesty of allowing this situation to just evolve the way it is. And the numbers won't, the numbers won't diminish, Ollie. You'll, we had seasonal fluctuations down here. We have a monsoon. In your case, you know, it's a very different meteorological conditions. There will be a, uh, a reduction in numbers naturally over the next six months. But I will guarantee you that by the time spring, summer, 23 hits in the UK, uh, those numbers that you've just articulated will be seen and will grow because that pool of displaced people, as I said, is 65 million and they are looking for somewhere to home. It's uh, a topic which is a podcast in itself and it's fascinating because we've both experienced it in a positive way. We both believe and agree upon it was successful. Hiccups, no doubt about it. Reflections. You, there's always ways you can improve something and do better. But I think in the whole, it was a, an incredible operation to be a part of. And I must admit, I look back on it fondly as having a positive impact, certainly in what I was doing. Um, I, I would just like to close on just understanding uh, after leaving um your role as the the commissioner for australian border force what what's what what does life look like now for roman quadrally what is uh, what's what, what's in your post policing and, and enforcement investigative enforcement life like this is euphemism ollie which is called um a portfolio approach to one's career um and it's a euphemism only because um you know, it just means that you're doing a lot of things at the same time trying to juggle a lot of balls and keep them in the air um you know as, as most of the ex-public servants do go into the consulting pasture. Uh, that's been uh, a learning journey in itself. Um, mm -hmm. What I've found, though, uh, and I won't bore the listeners with uh, what the portfolio looks like, um, but what I've found is that I have both naturally, because I'm interested in it, but also because that's where my domain expertise lies, gravitated towards uh, private sector work which is adjacent to national security and the um the policing security intel border security world was once a uh, a protected domain that private sector occasionally had a bit of um insight into providing services and goods but those um those two domains have really sort of blended together now where there are uh, private sector entities um, individuals in some cases that are embedded into national security uh, operations, policy, capability development. That's where I'm working. Um, I do it in a way which is advisory. I am involved in the introduction of some really good technologies that are helping my ex-colleagues and friends do the job better. And so, you know, to, to sum it up, I'm still doing what I did when I was in the job. I'm actually helping the front line do their job better and it's very rewarding both in um 
money terms, which, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in the private sector, but um, also in terms of my job satisfaction and my individual happiness about uh, being involved in, as a public servant. And it's something I really enjoy. Before we close, one question. What's the greatest challenge facing Australian policing today? I actually think, and I've been close to this um, because I have been used as a sort of a sounding board by um, the children of some of my friends and family and network who want to join police and were motivated by the same things I was uh, for joining the cops, you know, really doing something good and a job that it was different, diverse, um, you know, gave you some skills and, um, you know, it was exciting. And uh, there are kids out there today, and I, I use that term not in a, in a derogatory way, but, you know, the young people that have got the exact same motivations, Ollie, that you and I had to join the cops. And um, what I've seen in the last sort of five to ten years is they – that, that enthusiasm, that passion gets beaten out of them really quickly. They lose it so quickly. And the attrition numbers um, that are, are, are being experienced in Australian policing, at least, I haven't done an analysis with the rest of the world, really worries me because these are people that I, these are people that I, I know and have come to know as I've helped them through their journey and their applications and through their period in the academy and then in their first couple of years out in the street when they go through things like we talked about earlier, the PTSD, and they leave, and they leave within a number of years. And mm. the reason for that is there's a massive disconnect between um, their expectations and what actually happens in the real world. And they get out there and they're overwhelmed with uh, constant response work, and it's repetitive. It's DV, it's uh, it's um, alcohol fuel violence, it's uh, drug-affected behaviours, um, it's mental ill health, and they are churning. As you know, when, when cops get into their first phase of their career, it's normally uniform, it's response. You know, It's very rare they go into a specialist role. And what we are doing is we have to deal with those problems out on the, on the front line because they are the real problems that the world faces, but we are not preparing our young officers for that first phase of their career where their ideology is being just eroded every single day by just going through this grind that I just described. And they go, you know what, I'm getting paid $90,000 a year with overtime and lots of you know, weekends and I have to do this shit. I don't want to do this shit. I joined the job to do something exciting and meaningful and me responding to a dozen jobs a day, uh, which is just the same, uh, is just not what I joined to do. And so we're seeing this um, this attrition and um, that is a loss of experience. Um, it's a loss of, um, of good managerial and frontline supervisory skills. And so I think the biggest challenge uh, in Australian policing today is to prepare the workforce for that first phase of their career, which is going to be tough. It, it is a tough period of time. If they can get through that, then opportunities open up in terms of plainclothes work or forensic work or analyst work or you know, uh, uh, supervisory team leader work, but um, they lose sight of the promotional or the diversification opportunities because they're in the grind every day. I, I think it's a, I think it's a real problem. Well, it's the last nearly two hours have been absolutely fascinating. It's been an incredibly ins it's been an incredible insight into your career 
you're navigating through some incredible um, challenges, touchstone moments, as often described by a former interview that we, we spoke to recently in terms of the pressures, the resilience, um, and, you know, the sacrifices that you made. So uh, on behalf of my team here at the Protect and Serve podcast, thank you ever so much for your service. Thank you ever so much for your continued thoughts on very important topics which are affecting countries all over the world in terms of the level of displaced people that are trying to find a route to a safer place, which um, provides many challenges to many different foreign governments. Um, we wish you all the best in your coming years of uh, private sector work. Uh, and uh, thank you ever so much for taking part uh, this morning in the podcast. Ollie, it's felt slightly indulgent, but it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the ACAST.